You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written... It's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. The Houndsman XP Podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsmen of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsmen. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. For 76 years, this made-in-America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say made in America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms, fueled by Joy. is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in The original podcast for the complete Houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up there! Yeah! 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 Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe. 
from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many, day, how many days a week do you spend on As much as I can, to be honest with you. Anytime that I get, I'm, I'm out there. Join us for every heart-pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else. I'm going to hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. I was walking out with the hounds to get to a crossroads, and the hounds were probably 50 yards in front of me, and they all stopped. And they said, how come they're stopped? I said, because they know they're waiting for me to cross that road. They said, well, why did they do it? I said, because I'm with them, and they know what I'm doing. And every one of them has got a name, and they all know the name. On this episode of the Houndsman XP Podcast, we are going to take a trip, and our tour guide is Mr. John Broadhurst from Liverpool, England. Originally, he now lives in the United States, but John was a professional huntsman and terror man for the fox hunts in England, and he served in that capacity for decades, and he's willing to share all of the history of traditional hound work and terrier work and how the two come together to create the traditional fox hunt in England. I met John at the American Hunting Terrier Association trials a few weeks ago in Somerset, Kentucky. And as I was making a round through the Southeast last month, then I stopped at Mr. John's house and interviewed him in person. To say that John is a hunting expert is an understatement this guy is a fanatic while i was there i got to go through all of the old photo albums i was amazed by the collection of hound hunting memorabilia he has everything from classic paintings to bronze statues to actual hunting horns that were used in the fox hunt john has also written two books they are titled Terrier Men and Terriers, Volumes 1 and 2, and it is a deep dive into hunting terriers. There's a lot in this one, folks, but the best part is John shares his vast experiences and knowledge about hunting with hounds. The Old South Dog Box is rocking. Let's get the tailgate down. It's time to dump the box. Briar Creek Kennels is your complete hound hunting outfitter. Boots, lights, collars, and tracking equipment. Dog boxes, kennel supplies, collars, clothes, squalors. Whew, they have it all. Briar Creek Kennel is a garment and dog tree dealer. Owner Chris Girth will ensure Briar Creek Kennel customers will get top of the industry customer service. Whether you purchase from their website or you find them at a major coonhound event, Chris and his staff will share expert knowledge and experience about every product they offer. Chris Girth is a top competitor and breeder of hounds. He knows what gear you need to be successful. Look for Briar Creek Kennels on the web for a complete online store or look at their fully stocked trailer at any major coonhound event. Briar Creek Kennels, offering a hound hunting public generations of excellence. We are rolling. 
Welcome to the Houndsman XP podcast, everybody. We got a special treat for you this week, and uh, I met John Broadhurst uh, in Somerset, Kentucky, at the American Hunting Terrier trial here a couple weeks ago, and it just absolutely, John, you blew my socks off when I when I seriously when I started talking to you, you know, we we go to those things, and when I got to the thing, you, you never know who you're going to meet, and I was introduced to you, and and. Uh, you are from England, and you were a, were you actually a huntsman over in England? A professional huntsman. Professional huntsman. With a pack of beagles. Becky Dwyer is going to want to listen to this. She's like, a, we call her the beagle queen over here in the United States. She runs lions with, with uh, beagles and has, has uh, started breeding beagle into her, their big game hounds and things like that out there with great success. So. She probably done that for the nose. Yeah. For the beagle nose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, before I went with beagles, I was professional terrier man to two packs of foxhounds. There are so many layers to you, John. We're not going to be able to unpack everything in one episode. I, prom- I, I can tell you that. But uh, you've written two books uh, yes. on terriers. And... Um, in those books, and I, I told you this off air, but I'm going to tell, you, tell everybody right now that if you're a, if you hunt with dogs, these are books that you should have on your shelf. They are collector's items. Um, so tell us about the book. Let's just start out. Um, let's start out with talking about where you're from. Talk about John Broadhurst's story here. Okay, well, I'm uh, from Liverpool, England. My dad was a Liverpoolian from Liverpool, which is a at that time, it was a big, rough city. And my mother was a farmer's daughter from Middle England. Um, and they met in the war. My mum was in the women's army. My dad was in, in the army in World War Two. And it's through my mother's family that I, what can I say, became involved in the countryside. Mm-hmm. When I was a little kid, my mum would put me on a train and send me 150 miles to the farm in my summer holidays and I'd stay up there and then I'd, I'd be watching fox sounds and things and that and they'd meet at my mother's, my grandma's farm. My mum's brothers all hunted, everybody hunted, some on the horseback, some done terrier work, some just followed them. Yeah. So, and people say to me, how do you come from Liverpool and get into fox hunting. Because your dad wasn't a hunter, right? No, it no. All, it all came from your mom's side. I, I was raised in a big Irish Catholic community mm-hmm. in Liverpool, and a rough area now, don't get me wrong. And, and my mum, as I say, was a farmer's daughter from Middle England, so that, I took after that side, you know. Right, yeah. <laughs> now, my brothers and sisters, I think they took after my dad's side. <laughs> but me being the oldest, I took after that side. <laughs> So you started your mom. Your, why did your mom? Did your mom send all the kids up there? Or did she just send you up? No, but me being the oldest, and uh, I'd go there all summer holidays, like um, and winter holidays as well. Mm-hmm. How many brothers and sisters did you have? I got two brothers, two sisters. I lost a, a young brother, so we had I had three brothers. You know, mm-hmm. so there was six of us, six children. You know, there's six kids in my family yes. too. So well. And, and we wasn't a big family in an Irish community. Right. There's a woman around the corner who had 21 kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I think I, my my mom used to send me places too. I think it was to get rid of me for a little bit, so she can only. <laughs> that probably my mom as well. <laughs> so tell me what it was like being a kid growing up in the city and and jumping on a train and going 150 miles, and then boom, you walk into this world with with uncles that hunt. Well, what can I say? I'd be there, and I just love the countryside being out in it. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, I'd be snaring rabbits when I was six or seven years old and messing around in the woods by myself. You know, you could do that them days. Mm-hmm. And you could put a kid on a train them days. You can't put a kid on a train nowadays. What years would that have been to give our so listeners been an idea? about 1953, 54. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's about six or seven or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so... Going from Liverpool, I've never been there, so I have no, I have no comparison. What's it compared to? Tell, tell me what the comparison would be to a city like here in the United States. Uh, Liverpool was a, a, what can I say? Um, it was a rough city, you know. Size wise, how how big compared to a United States town or a city? Well, big as. What, Charlotte or something like that? Maybe bigger, you know, or sure. bigger. Now, maybe Chicago, I don't know, you know. Uh-huh. But um, and Liverpool was a rough area. There's a lot of Irish people moved there. That's what I was raised in, you know, mm-hmm. in Irish community, Irish Catholic community. But, um, I mean, it's got a better city now than what it was them days, you know. Mm-hmm. But then it was rough. I mean, that's, when I was growing up, I seen kids with no shoes. You know, I was lucky. I might have had a, a, a pair of shoes on my feet. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and did you have to protect them? Keep somebody else from taking them? Well, in not, Liverpool, not so bad them days, but now you do. <laughs> but you know, that's it. Liverpoolians have got the name as a scouser, and people say, "How oh, do you get the nickname a scouser?" Well, what scousers, whatever you had on a Sunday dinner. The leftover, the meat, would go in a pot on Monday, and that'd be on the cast iron stove all day cooking mm-hmm. with potatoes. And everybody in England, in Liverpool, had scouts on a Monday because there was no money around them days. It was a poor city. Yeah. So that's how you got the nickname, a scouser. Okay. And then people say, Where are you from? I'm a scouser. If you come from, <laughs> Liverpool, from, from London, you're a Cockney. If you come from Newcastle, you're a Geordie. You yeah. know, it's just a nickname. Right. That's how we got the name. And we were, everybody in Liverpool had scouts on a Monday. That was the leftovers. Yeah. Because it wasn't a, it wasn't a very prosperous city in them <laughs> days. I remember when I was a little kid, about five or six, and I remember a woman taking one egg back to the to the local store because it was bad on a on a saucer. One egg. And that tells you how how, how poor yeah. it was, you know. Yeah, you need that egg. <laughs> yeah, one egg. One egg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need this egg. I need this yeah. egg. So you, you, at six or seven, you start traveling, and you're going north, right? To I'm going east. East. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And what kind of what kind of area would that have been? It was all countryside. Mm-hmm. All farming, all farming community, little villages. Uh, the village my mum was born in. The, Probably 15 hours or so. But it was all countryside. So for the, a city boy, it was like, get out there, do what you want, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> no one to stop you. Yeah. You can do what you like. And, and then I'd be out there shooting pe- wood pigeons and rabbits and hares when I was 
eight or nine years of age by myself, you know. Yeah. You couldn't do that in the city. <laughs> no. No. Did your did your uncles have hounds and terriers and things? They had some of them had terriers. But they had horses as well where they hunted with. Mm-hmm. But um one of them done a bit of terrier work for the local pack of foxhounds. Uh, I think that's what made it tick him in me. That might have just clicked me that side, you know. Yeah. Because I'd see them, be with them, digging foxes out. And um, in them days, you could take a fox and send it somewhere else for the hunt the next day. You can't do that nowadays. That's, yeah. That's so you could dig now. the fox, put it, catch the fox, yeah. put it. And they'd be, say they were meeting 20 miles away, they'd take that fox and let it go mm-hmm. that morning. But you can't do that now. Right. Right. Let's yeah. let's talk about band stuff here in a few minutes, pre-band. And because and, I know you've written... You refer to that a lot in your books about what happened pre-band and post-band and stuff like that, and we'll, we'll touch on that in a few minutes. But um, so you, let's break down the difference because I've I've said this before on the podcast. I think a lot of times in the United States, uh, there's only a handful of people that are that are hunters in this. In, in the country here that understand the function and how a fox hunt was run, the value of the terrier, ver, you know, the houndsman, you got the terrier man, and then let's just break down a fox hunt, a traditional fox hunt in England when you got into it. In, in what way? Well, we don't... We don't know how they go, you know. I mean, you've you've got you've got hound people, you've got terrier people. I want to talk about the difference. Uh, you worked as a terrier man for well, a number of years. I mean, you've got the masters who more or less run the hunt, mm-hmm. and they put a lot of money. A lot of them put money into it and different things, and uh, raise raise money and have functions to keep the hunt going. Then you've got the huntsman. He's more or less in charge of that kennel. And you probably have a whipper-in or two whipper-ins. And they're mostly young boys or, or girls. Mm-hmm. And they help him when he's out hunting in the field, keep hounds together and see different things and tell him what's going on. The terrier man... Well, let's not, let's not yeah. move too quick here because most <laughs> of the time, when, even when I look at your pictures here, I see either you or someone else in a red coat with a lot of hounds around them. Uh, you're, I saw a picture with of you with beagles. Those beagles are all following you. They're not. When I if when I was a kid, if we opened the kennel on the beagles, I mean we were chasing beagles. They weren't following us. <laughs> so t- talk to me about that part. I mean, how well, do you guys? You guys are moving lar- these large packs of hounds down these uh, roadways between the hedges, and they're they're going. You've got you've got a good handle on those hounds. Well. T- you're with them hounds 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. You're with them all day, every day, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. So they get used to you. It's like I'm going back 25 years ago. I had some Americans came over and I was walking out with the hounds. They get to a crossroads and the hounds were probably 50 yards in front of me and they all stopped. And they said, how come they stopped? I said, because they know they're waiting for me to cross that road. I said, well, why did they do it? I said, because I'm with them and they know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And every one of them has got a name. And they all know the name. And usually when you breed a pack of hounds, you'll name them after the sire or the dam. 
Right. And usually, not so much in America, but in England, it's tradition is two syllables. Mm-hmm. So, say you've got a hound called um, Bandsman or something like that, mm-hmm. a, a dog hound. You'll name the pups like Banker and and different things like that. The, and you usually name them the first two letters of the sire or the dam. Mm-hmm. So, they all know the name. and. It's just a way of life. You, you can't explain it. They know you, who you are, you know. Yeah. And they could be 500 yards away, and you shout the name, and they'll turn around and look at you. Uh, so they could be on a full, could they be on a hunt, and you could recall them off of a, well, off of a track? Sometimes. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're, too, um, <laughs> they're, they're dead set on getting it. And there's instances where, you, um, say you're beagling, and you're, you're hunting the hare. Mm-hmm. And they'll get away on a fox. And you try and stop them. You're supposed to blow a foul note. But some of them just don't take no notice to you. They want to be hunting and they're gone, you know what I mean? You're supposed to blow a foul note a foul because, note because you're... To, to stop them from hunting that foul thing. But All right. <laughs> but um, but and you, you, I watched you. We recorded this. I recorded a short uh, version of you doing this on our social media uh, platforms. But you blew the horns... Tell us, I want to know the, how many different uh, recalls or sounds or calls can, or, or do you have in a typical fox hunt? There may be about four or five. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be um, gone away, which is when the fox goes away, especially if you fox something mm-hmm. and, and the fox is gone. So you blow gone away and then everybody knows that that fox, fox has gone away. Does that mean? Does that mean after you sent it to ground and you bolted it? Well, or? unless you found it in the wood just there by itself. Uh huh. You know, you just in the woods and down next minute gone away, and you blow gone away. So everybody in that field will know that note that that fox is gone. Mm-hmm. And then if he's gone to ground, you blow a different note. Okay. You blow like three tunes, you know, like saying "gone to ground." Right. So people know that the fox has gone to ground. Um. Then it's going home the end of the day, which is a big long note, you know, and you're just playing on 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 on, on the horn, you know. Mm-hmm. This um, is another one crossed the ride, you know, when, when a hound when the fox has crossed the ride with hound behind it, like in the middle of the woods, uh-huh. crossed the, and people know he's going that way. It's just so many different no notes on it, you know. So so as a as a huntsman, you're the one that's blowing that. Yes. Does, how many people in the in the group would have a horn? Just one. Just one. Now, some of these, some people will have, some will have the mirror, you know. But typically, it's one man with one horn, mm-hmm. and he's in charge of that fox hound. Then you'll have a field master. He's in charge of all the people. Okay. And he keeps them in check so they don't get in front of hounds and run over hounds and things like that. Okay. So, but um, the huntsman is typically in charge. The masters are the bosses, but he's in charge of that day, more or less. You know. Okay. And the, the terrier man and the whipper vins listen to him. To what, if, he, if he blows to ground, then he's calling for the terrier man. Yeah. So you need to get in there with the terrier and let him ask him what, what he wants to do, whether he wants to bolt him, kill him. I mean, nowadays, if you put a fox to ground now, you put a terrier in, you've got to kill that fox. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as bolting it now. And hunting it again, that, that's a no-no now, you know. Yeah. But years ago, um, 
you'd kill a lot of foxes in the ground. And especially if it's on an estate where there's a lot of pheasants and the gamekeepers are there, mm -hmm. they want them dead. Right. So, I mean, you could have it in 10 minutes. You could be there four or five hours, but they want that fox dead, you know. Yeah. So what time of day would you typically start the hunt? About 10 o'clock, 10, 11 o'clock. In the morning. It's usually they meet at 11. That's the usual time. Mm -hmm. And not so much here. But in England, you go on till dark. Mm -hmm. uh, America's not that. Uh, they don't seem to stay out as long as what we do back home, you know. We get started earlier, though. Well, so do we. In, in, <laughs> Cuban, in Cuban season, we'd be starting to fight for, at 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, yeah, but you finish earlier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, one of the things out west is you've got to finish earlier. You, we, because of the heat? Because of the wolves. If you go to the northwest. Oh, yeah? Oh, okay. Yeah, we. Yeah, well, I know several people up there. It's like nothing. We're not turning turning out on any tracks after 2 o'clock. You know, if it's at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and we haven't got a track, it's time to go to the house. Because, you know, they just don't want their hounds out there running but it's, that late. I, I one thing, this, the fox something over here is, is different than England. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of boys over there from England and Ireland who try and keep it our way, but it's not the same. In England, we want to stay out. Yeah, let's save, let's save that. I want to talk about the differences in England and the, in the States here in a few minutes. Um, so you, did you start out in the fox hunt as a terrier man? Well, no, I didn't. Uh, I left school when I was 15, and I worked on a construction site. But I've always had terriers and leeches mm -hmm. from a young kid. And it was about... What's the difference between a terrier and a lurcher? Well, is a lurcher is a sighthound, a greyhound cross. Yeah. You know, the terrier is... A terrier is bred more or less for earthwork. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know, but England invented more terriers than any place in the world. Yeah. All these different terriers, Highland Terrier, Scottish Terrier, they're all invented in England. Mm -hmm. Now there's some come along the last 20 years or whatever. But, um, but what was I forgot what we were saying then. <laughs> well, I asked you the difference. I, we want to do this like, you know, there are going to be people listening to this podcast that don't know anything about the lurcher versus the terrier. Well, so I asked you, you asked the difference. You asked me about terrier. What happened when it was about 30 or maybe in the early 70s, mid-70s, I used to help a boy who was Terry Man at a professional pack of foxhounds. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a job came up in the south of England. I put him fit and I got it just by luck. Mm -hmm. um, that was 79. So I stayed there for a few years. And then I went to another pack in 83, which was one of the top packs in, in Great Britain at that time, mm -hmm. which is the Crawley and Horsham Foxhounds. What was the name of it again? The Crawley and Horsham. Okay. But they were probably six of the best years of my life. Yeah. Um, and to be a professional terrier man, you've got to have, you've got to be in touch with your huntsman all the time and tell him what's going on. And Like the night before, I'd be out air stopping until two o'clock in the morning. Blocking the holes up, especially the badger sets. Okay. And the next morning, I go out and check them again. So, and that's the way you get your runs. Because once you get a fox going, you find him in the woods, he's going to run to them holes. If he can't get in, he's got to keep going. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get your hunts. And I think that the biggest, the longest hunt we ever had was um, 
11 miles as the crow flies. Mm -hmm. uh, no, sorry, in a circle. And I was already digging a fox out for a gamekeeper. And when I got there, they said, we've run this fox about 11 miles. See if you can get him out. I bolted him again, and he'd done the same 11 miles. So he did So 20. that fox done 22 miles, and we lost him in the dark mm -hmm. on a road. I don't how he got away. I don't know, but that was good. I like to see a fox get away. Yeah. So it's, it's so not all. It's not all about the kill him. The terrier, the terrier man. You would be in communication with your huntsman. Yes. And the day before the hunt, you would go out. Would you take your terriers out to find the dens? You know where they are. You, you, just, already... you just know. You 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 see. You, you know where every more or less everyone is. You know how? How do you know that? Just from experience Be of yes, knowing? because you've been there before, or somebody's told you where they are. And sometimes you'd run a terrier through, make sure, and then block it up or something. You know. Mm -hmm. But see, they've stopped all that now. You can't block it no more mm -hmm. in England. But um, and then if you see a fox around somewhere, or you bolted one, you tell you. Your huntsman at the meet, a bolted one, there's one somewhere there. So we'd have an idea before they got there that there's a fox in that area. Right. So we'd be more or less ready, you know. Mm -hmm. But that, it's like a, you and the huntsman have got like telepathy between you, you know. And and then that's good because it, he, he's looking for you and you're looking for them, you know. That's, that's one of the things that's intrigued me about the terrier is I – and where I started to go with this when we started recording, one of the things I didn't understand was the relationship between the terrier man and the hound, yes. the hounds, houndsman, or the huntsman in your case. Could you have a successful successful fox hunt without the terrier? Oh, yes, depending on where you are. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, see, years and years, I'm going back even before my time, in... The little villages and certain areas, you'd have like one or two guys or an old guy, and he was called an earth stopper. And he knew where all them badger sets was, and the night before, he'd block all them up. Mm -hmm. So the next little village, you'd have another one lived there, and at the end of the season, you'd have an earth stopper's dinner for all them people who helped you out. See, sometimes the terrier man can't cover all that. Yeah. So you'd have an earth stopper. He wasn't employed by anybody, just a local guy. Mm -hmm. And he'd block all them holes up the night before and check them the next morning. And he would do that because if he was a local because, guy. Yeah, because you like fox hunting and that, yeah. And because you, they you, didn't want the fox raiding the chickens. and Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, and, it's not only chickens. They kill so many lambs and that, you know what I mean? There you go. You know, I mean, <clears throat> there's nothing worse than a farmer getting up in the morning and walking in the field and finding 10 lambs with their heads off. And the fox would do that. And the fox would do that and maybe take one. The same with the chicken. He'd get in there, kill 20, and maybe take one. So would the fox be the – would that be the apex predator over there? The, the yes, that's all we've got there. We don't yeah. have no coyote, no wolves. Mm -hmm. um, now you get a bad badger. You get a rogue badger would do things like that, you know. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Them badger, you get a rogue, what you call a rogue, and he'd be in there, and he'd kill chickens and lambs, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But um, – that's what I was saying before about the, the fell hounds in the Lake District and in Wales, where you've got a lot of sheep and lamb is a big thing in England. And they, if a farmer got up in the morning and found six dead lambs, he'd call the hunt. So the next morning they'd go there with, say, six or eight old hounds mm -hmm. and drag up to where that fox is. He might be two miles away in the earth. 
And then you'd have to kill everything there, the cubs and everything. You don't like doing that, but it's got to be done. Right. That's a livelihood over there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the farmers, a lot of farmers rely on, on the hounds. Yeah. You know, not so much in um, the flatland and things like that, but especially in the mountains and Scotland and Wales and things like that. They rely on them foxhounds to keep them foxes down. Yeah. Yeah, how many how many foxes could you run in a day over there? How many how many oh, would you catch? Could you catch in a day? You might find none. You might find one. And uh, what's the most you've ever caught in a day on a hunt? We caught four. Four. Yeah. Um, but I've I've been out some mornings, what you call cubbing early morning, getting young hounds going. And I'm going back about three or four years ago. I counted sixteen foxes in two hours. And where was that at? That was in the south of England. Okay. 16. But, I mean, that country there was all uh, grass and cattle. Mm -hmm. There was no shooting there. There was no pheasants. And so it was just a big hunting country. So they left the foxes alone. Right. We counted 16 in one morning in like two hours. Yeah. You know. That's amazing. That's amazing. So what... what, um what made you decide to write not one but two books about terriers? Well, I got to, in 97, I was hunting a pack of beagles across the field, and I got smashed by a horse. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got my leg broken. I've got no ligaments. It done me medial ligaments and my cruciates. So I was over there maybe two years later. This is before I moved to the States. Mm-hmm. And um, a woman said to me, from a local woman, she said, "Why don't you write a book on terriers, John?" I said, "I haven't got time to do things like that, you know." And <laughs> she said, "Other people are doing this." She said, "You've got time now, you know. You can't work, you know. You can't walk." <laughs> so I sat down and I wrote names of terrier lads I knew who'd been in there a long time, way before me, and I ended up with like fifty names in an hour. Mm-hmm. So what I done, I thought. What can I do with this? So I thought I'll ask them all the same questions. Mm-hmm. So I'd call a guy and then I'd go and, interview, go and see him. And all the Italian lads over there, they seem to know one another. Right. You know, but you, you just all know one another in a certain area, uh-huh. you know, or, or you know he worked for this hunt and he worked for that hunt and this lad works terriers, you know. So I, wrote, I asked them all the same question. Everybody, you know, how long you been in it? What's your best dog? All this and that. And you know what? Oh, but nobody's got the same answer. <laughs> They've all got different answers. And I thought, that's interesting because that makes it more interesting. Right. And different people like different terriers. Some like black dogs, some like white dogs, some like fell terriers, some like different types of terriers, you know. And, but everybody's got a different opinion. That was the first one. And the first one, it just it became so popular that I was in England, I wrote it myself, I'd done 1,200. And I sold every one myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't sell them to a bookseller because I know they kill people, you know. Yeah. So what I'd done, I was at a game fair in England and a boy shouted me. And he said, John, he said, I'd sold completely out 1,200. That's all them all around the world, South Africa, Germany. I'd get calls 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was at a game fair and a boy shouted me, he said, one of your books is just sold for 800 pounds. At that time, it was $1,200. I sold them books for 
Right. I said, you're joking. He said, honestly, John. He said, 800 pound on, on eBay or whatever it was. I went, I don't believe that. So what I've done to stop people making money like that, I reprinted it. And then I sold it to a bookseller. I sold them, I think it was six boxes or four boxes full. Well, he went and put the money up six times to what I sold it for. So I thought, well, that's never going to happen again. Mm -hmm. So then people were getting on to me. Why don't you do another one? You miss so-and-so and so-and-so. Anyway, so I decided to do another one. Different people. Mm -hmm. I went to France. I went to, uh, went to a French game fair. I hunted guys in France. I uh, interviewed guys in France. I went to Ireland. I stayed in Ireland three or four days. Interviewed guys in Ireland. And I'd done another 60. And they've all got a different opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody. But and people keep saying to me, now, when are you going to do another one? I said, I can't do another one. <laughs> <laughs> sure you can. You, you know, you keep going forever. But, I mean, I tried to do it. The two books, I tried to do it on lads who'd had terriers at least 20 years who were new. Mm -hmm. Some had them 40 years, 50 years, some had them 60 years, you know. But um, that's what I tried to do because I thought the old people, the old terry men, seen a lot more than what we do nowadays. And they, especially with foxhounds mm -hmm. and terrier work. Um, nowadays, uh, I can't see Terry Wake carrying on in England the way it is, the way um, the way things are going over there. I honestly can't see Fox something being in England in twenty years' time. Huh? Mm -hmm. It's um, you know you got all these do-gooders in the city in concrete jungles, moving to the countryside and telling people what to do. Right. You know, and they they, they buy a plot of land or a little cottage with a backyard you couldn't swing a cat in. You know, <laughs> and and they think they own the old mountain. It's the same way here. We, it's worse over there now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like it seems like th that's a good message to put out there because those things find their way here. That culture finds its way here. You're right, but um, they just think they own the old place, and you know, don't live in the countryside. We can't abide by the rules. Right. Right. You don't stay in your concrete jungle. Don't come here. We don't want you. you know I mean? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so in in your books, how many how many different? Um, as I've read through your books, there's a lot of people that talk about Jack Russells and they talk about uh, fell terriers. Those seem to be the two yeah. that you most see, people talk about. Some people are talking about Patterdales. Well, when I was growing up, there was no Patterdales. Okay, why not? Uh, Patterdale is the name of a little village in the Lake District. Mm -hmm. That's where the Patterdale name came from. There, there was no such thing as a Patterdale. For what we know, it was just a black felt area. And then there was a guy in England called Brian Nuttall. He's in one of my books. He, Brian passed away about two months ago or something. Super guy. And we all credit, most of us credit him with inventing that Patterdale which was what he invented or what he, his stamp was, was um, smooth-coated with a little bully head on it, like a little bull terrier head on it. Yeah. Now, the, the fell terriers wasn't, wasn't like that. The fell terriers had got a bit of a harsh coat to, to, to um, sort of cope with the weather on there, the rain, the snow and everything. Them smooth-coated ones, there was none of them when I was growing up. Yeah. I mean, I never seen a black terrier until maybe the mid-70s. And the black terrier 
it was a smooth-coated one with a pointy nose. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, now they're everywhere. And people go, you know, crazy on Patterdale. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've dug with some good Patterdales, but I've never had one. Yeah, I've you were had, talking I've about I've had that. black terriers, but I've never had a good one. There's a picture of you with a black terrier in that book. Oh, yes, I know there is, yeah. But you said it belonged to somebody <laughs> it else. It belonged to me. <laughs> but now I've dug some stuff with black terriers, and good black terriers. I'm not knocking no... Colour doesn't come into it, you know what I mean? I understand. It's like hounds. I mean, I've got plot hounds. But colour doesn't come into it. A good dog is a good dog, no matter what colour it is. That's exactly you know, it right. It could be pink with blue spots on it. <laughs> it could be anything. Right. But um, I've always liked felt terriers and Russells. Good, you know, good good Russells, not De big ones. Describe a felt terrier. The, the felt terrier, to me, um, it belongs in the Lake District of England. That's where it comes from, more or less. And they it's F-E-L-L. F-E-L-L-S, the fells, yeah. yeah. They call them mountain, the fells. Mm -hmm. It's like the huntsman, they call them fell huntsman. And nearly every fell huntsman has always got two or four terriers with him. Because when he's walking them mountains, he can't be shouting down to a road two miles away to bring a terrier. Mm -hmm. So we'll have them with him. And if a fox goes to the ground in a rock crag or something, he's there with his dog, so he's got them straight away. But the fell terrier... I've always liked the small one, 12, 12 and a half inches. Mm -hmm. And they've always, most of them have got a nice harsh coat on them to cope with the weather. Describe um, what a harsh coat is. It's what you say, like wire wool, you know, mm -hmm. what you call steel wool. A coat like that, and it's like got an undercoat to it, you know, so they can stand the weather a lot more than a smooth coated dog can. You know, you, you get out and say rainy weather, real cold and sleety in there, and, it's, and you've got a smooth dog, you'll see it shaking. Mm -hmm. You know, and them fellas have, you can stand a little bit more than that, you know. Yeah. It's like, I like a Russell with a good coat on it, a harsh coat. Uh, don't get me wrong, we've got some smooth ones here, but they wouldn't be able to stand that weather over there. Yeah, describe the weather. What was it? What was well, the weather like in the fell? Uh, the Lake District in, in England and Wales mm -hmm. uh, and Scotland. It can be snowing one minute. It could be hailstoning the next. It could be raining all day long. But you're out there with them hounds hunting, you know. Mm -hmm. And especially if you've got a bad fox that's killing lambs, that farmer wants that fox killing. So you're going to be there, hail, rain, snow, anything. Six yeah. feet of snow, you're going to be out there. It makes yeah. no difference. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I mean, my... When I'd have a vacation in England or something, when I was Terry man, I'd go to Fells for a week or two because I just loved that kind of hunting on your feet, walking the mountains, you know. Yeah, so it's, it wasn't all... I think uh, we have this picture of the traditional fox hunt where, you know, everybody's... We even th I even thought that everybody in the hunt wore a red jacket and, 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 but we find, now I've found out that only the huntsman's wearing the red jacket. Well, and the whipper in and some of the masters. Okay. So you know who they are, you know. Yeah. But, uh, it's always done on horseback, but up in the Lakeland the district. La the Lake district in Scotland and Wales, it's on foot. You couldn't ride a horse on them mountains. Yeah. You just couldn't do it. There's no way. So you're on your feet and you'd be out there four, five, six hours some days. Mm -hmm. And you're on the mountain, and it gets cold and wet now. <laughs> so, so that that brings me to this question: <clears throat> You have a lot of pictures of digs. 
<laughs> and and I'm not sure. I mean, I, that's one part of that I'm not real intrigued with because I've dug plenty of holes. So, but you you terrier men seem to really sad, and you even brag about like we did a 12 foot dig, or we did what's a what's the biggest dig you were ever on? 16 feet. 16 feet yeah. down. Yes. Now I've got a buddy in England. He got a terrier in a mine shaft. And he was down 30 feet. Oh, my goodness. And he, he was down on a mine shaft, so did he have to dig, too? Was he digging? He got down. He got a machine in the end to get down. But um, it's not, I remember being in the Lake District years ago with um, one of the fell packs, and we put a fox to ground in a rock crag. I was on the top of the crag, probably 50 feet high, and a guy there put two terriers in. And somebody shouted out, it made no difference. He said, there's already 14 there and never come out. <laughs> you know, but I mean, the guys just put, you just do yeah. that thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And some of them rock crags, you have to blast them out to get the, rescue the terriers. I was amazed yeah. by that, that you guys were blasting. Oh, yeah. But some of them digs have been a week. It's, I know boys who stayed on a dig for a week to rescue terriers. It's just a way of life back home. Mm-hmm. And you go out, and maybe three or four, you'll go out one day and have a big dig, 10 feet or something. That's what you go for. <laughs> you go for the dig. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you We're going to have a dig. Let's go. Yeah, you were going out, especially years ago when you could dig the badgers. You know, yes, some big, and some That's of bad- one of the things that I saw you digging a lot of was yeah. badgers. Some of them badger sets over there got 40 holes to them on a the mountainside. They've been there since the Doomsday Book. They've been there that long. Yeah. You know, and people know them, but. You go out to have a dig. That's what you go for. You know, you go out and have a two-foot dig. It's not a good day. So if you if you heard that somebody was digging terriers, did the other terrier men, like, go help and, and things like if that? If they had a, a terrier trapped in there. Now, before, I think the, the locator came out in about maybe 77, 78, the first locator mm-hmm. with eight foot. But before that, there was no locators. And you could dig badgers in them days. And some of them badger sets would be 10, 15 feet deep. And you get a terrier trapped, and people got to know of it. The next day, there'd be 10, 15 lads there. They wouldn't go to work. They'd go to rescue that terrier. Mm-hmm. And that, and that you, you, you stick together, you know what I mean? So some, they would skip work to go help oh, a yeah. fellow terrier man. Oh, yeah, you would go man. to work, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you just get, but, I mean, not only in the fellows, everywhere, you know, if it was a, de- if, yeah. if it was a rescue terrier, them lads would go out there and help them, you know. Did I read something in one of your books that there was like an associ- a terrier rescue yes. association? The Fellow Moreland Working Terrier Club. And that, that was invented in the Lake District to rescue trapped terriers. That's mm-hmm. how it started. Um, Sir, um, Cyril Tyson was one of the first ones to get it going. Him and a lot of terrier men in the Lake District. And they started the Fellow Moreland Terrier Club to rescue trapped terriers. Hmm. And that's how, and that's how your club's still going. Yeah, because as I get into get this introduction into terriers and talk to different people, and they're talking about you know sending sending terriers under uh, silo floors, you know, concrete silo floors here in the United States, and I'm thinking, how do you get your dog out of there? You know it. Ha- this doesn't, I don't, this, I can't. And then I talk, I, re, I'm re, I picked up your books and I'm reading your books and you're <coughs> s- s- 
sending these terriers under boulders. And I'm thinking, how are you going to dig that out? How do you get that terrier out? You won't get it. Some of them rock piles, you won't get them out. And um, some of them fell heavy. It's the good thing about them. They're like monkeys. They'll jump things and they put their back against the rock and climb up it, you know. Yeah. They're just made that way. They're just bred that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, some you might be sitting there for six hours waiting for that terrier to come out. And a lot of the fell terriers, the good fell terriers now, they want that fox to kill him. So when that terrier goes in, he's going to kill that fox before he comes out. Mm-hmm. And you'd be sitting there waiting for it. It might be the next day. It might be the day after. <laughs> What's the longest you ever saw a terrier stay in the ground and come out? Houndsman XP is very proud of our partnership with the organization Freedom Hunters. Freedom Hunters is a nonprofit organization that takes America's veterans hunting from field to field, from the battlefield to a field near you when you volunteer your time to take America's warriors hunting with you and your hounds. It's easy. Go to houndsmanxp.com, click on the partnership tab, and it will take you to Freedom Hunters. You can go direct to their website to make donations at freedomhunters.org. Support America's heroes. Let's pay it back. Visit Freedom Hunters at freedomhunters.org or go to houndsmanxp.com and you can find them on our website from field to field. I know one was in seven days. I wasn't, that wasn't mine. I had one in, um, we put a foxy ground one night about about three o'clock in the afternoon in, in a, a bank, about 15 foot deep. And I couldn't even hear it, and it got dark on me, so I just blocked it up and left the coat there and won the holes. I uh, got a few lads the next day. We went back the next day. We opened it all up, the big the big um, face of it, opened about eight holes. Couldn't hear anything at all. So I thought, I think there were four of us. I said, I'll go to the police station and see if anybody found a terrier. Mm-hmm. I went there. They said, no, nobody. And when I got back the next afternoon, one of the boys said, I've heard the dog. He could hear the dog in the ground. So when we got on top of the bank, which is maybe 15 foot high, and listen, we could hear the dog about four or five feet down. So we opened it all up. And when we got there, the fox went past me, and the terrier was right still with him. Mm-hmm. And he'd been in there 24 hours. So mm-hmm. I got him out. And somebody said, what are you going to do? I said, give me another terrier. We're going to kill this fox. <laughs> it had to be killed. You know, it was on, yeah. a, it was on a big shooting estate. So we'll put another terrier in and put him in the truck. Yeah. 24 hours, of, but I know guys who's had seven hours. Uh, seven days, I mean. Seven days. Yes, yes and seven days. The terrier doesn't always make it out, though, do they? No. It, you know, not all of them, but that's part and parcel of the terrier work, you know. How does a terrier, I mean, how much does, how much does a fell terrier weigh? Weigh? Yeah, how much would it weigh? Eh, maybe 12 pounds, 13 pounds. How much does a fox weigh? 16 pounds, 18 pounds, 20 pounds. Depends. It's hard to imagine, um, you know, sending a a dog in to confront a wild animal like that. And the the dog would be successful. What makes makes them successful? Some of them are so clever. They'll duck and dive with that fox or something. But they're going in a little hole. How do they? Is it? 
Uh, well, they've been bed that many years for it, you know, mm -hmm. hundred years. And then a lot of them fell terriers. You can go back to certain dogs 50 years ago in that same line. And a lot of people, especially the felonsmen, he'll have a line of terriers and he will. And they'll go and use the good terrier off him and he'll go and use a good terrier. They don't breed off terriers that don't work. They're not big show people now. Mm -hmm. And I, that boy on the front of my first book, a lad named John Jackson, he, um, he was master of the Melbeck Foxhound in, in the Lake District. And he had terriers. He's had terriers all his life. His dad had them before him. His wife had a border terrier. This is just an instance. A beautiful looking dog and won all kinds of shows, but it never worked. People come to his house and said, I want to use your border terrier. He wouldn't let them use it. He said, what for? He said, well, I've seen it win the show. He said, it doesn't work. You're not using it. And that's a fell man for you. Yeah. If they don't work, they don't use them. Mm -hmm. You know, so some of them lines, you just go back years and years and years. And it's in them. But you watch some of them little them dogs, they, they're so clever, they know what to do. And when they get the chance, they'll probably get the, the fox by the throat and kill it, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just the way, they, they just know, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a heavier, so I don't know. Man, I'm <laughs> telling you, it's crazy, though, when I think about that. They're, they're going in there, and that fox is already turned around. He's running into he's he's running oh, into yeah. teeth, and yeah. the fox knows what's up. The terrier knows what's what, up. What I find, it's not the size of the fox. <clears throat> I find that the, the little vixens have always given me a lot of trouble. The, the females. Uh-huh. I mean, you get big dog foxes, but them little vixens, they're like snakes, you know, so fast, snapping, yeah. you know. And I've always had more trouble with a little vixen than a big dog fox. Yeah. Always. Have you seen, have you, on a dig, how many times have you dug down and the fox is still alive? Oh, nearly a nine out of ten. Nine out of ten? Yeah. And so do you dispatch the fox at that point, or does the yes, if that farmer, terrier become emboldened? If or? that farmer or that shepherd wants to kill him, you kill that fox. Mm -hmm. um, now, years ago, you, if, if it couldn't bolt when the, uh, the terrier got to it and you dug it, you'd get it out and let it go. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, I don't see it till it gets way away, and then you bring it back, you know. Right. And uh, I think one of the best pack of foxhounds I've ever seen on it was the border foxhounds in Scotland. And they put a fox to ground. They bolt that fox, but he'd take hounds a quarter of a mile away. And he'd just come strolling back to that earth. They didn't know where that fox to go, and they'd pick it up and hunt that fox. And if one day I was talking to one of the masters, they hunted a fox 56 mile one day and never caught it. Wow. That one, they was on quad bikes, four-wheelers. Mm -hmm. So them hounds must have done at least another third of that. Mm -hmm. and they were dragging up to that fox all day and never caught it. He said, but I will catch it. But he, and I said to him, uh, a guy called Michael Headley, I said, what's the most you caught? He said, I caught 11 one day with hounds. Now, not dug, right. hounds caught them. Mm -hmm. There's no, he, he didn't dig any, he didn't kill anything in the ground, he always bolted them. Wow. He said, but I caught 11 one day. How do you bolt a fox without... without uh uh, was he using terriers too? Yes. yes, yes okay. Yes, yes. I thought I thought yes. maybe he was just, you no. know, running his hounds and somehow he was bolting without a no, terrier. Te te but some will bolt, but no. no yeah, once they're in the ground. Yeah, once they're in the ground, and and they've been hounds have been after them. You need a terrier to bolt them. Yeah. yeah. 
it's just a, the whole thing. I never knew uh, that I was going to be this fascinated with the traditional English fox hunt. I just never knew it. <laughs> I didn't know it, John, until I met you and started talking to you. And it's like, man, I thought I had a pretty good grasp on what was going on around the world with, with hounds. And then I start talking to you about this fox hunt and all the different working parts. And I'm like, man, this is a story that we need to talk about. We need to get this out here because I think that it's important for us to understand where our roots are, where our, you know, where, where, this all got started, and you're to blame for it. Well, they reckon <laughs> these foxes over here in the beginning all came from England, don't they? <clears throat> the English fox hunters brought them over. Mm -hmm. Two fox hunters, you know. Yeah. So that's where they say it come from, you know. But speaking... Um, why, don't, why hasn't the fox taken off and been so prolific in the United States like it is in... Is it other predators? What do you, what's your opinion on that? Because you would think that we would have, we're not going to see 15 or 16 foxes in two no. hours. Well, you get a lot of trapping over here, don't you? That's mm -hmm. one thing. Then you've got the coyotes, you know. And coyotes will wipe a place out. Right. You know, not only rabbits and things, but they'll wipe the foxes out and everything, mm -hmm. you know. Um, in England, not so much now. Years ago, people, the gamekeepers, they saw foxes out, but they'd leave one or two for the hunt. So they could have a hunt. Nowadays, uh, you said gamekeeper. Yeah, we have. What's the? Explain what a gamekeeper. A, a gamekeeper is. in England, he might be working on say a private estate with a stately home and mm -hmm. the lord of the manor or something. It might be three thousand acres, might be ten thousand acres, and he'd be uh, say so many pheasants a year. Now, when I lived in, when I had the beagles in Wales. The estate I lived on was, I think it was 6,000 acres. He reared 125,000 pheasants a year. Mm -hmm. So he's called the gamekeeper. He'd rear them pheasants. And they'd probably shoot that place maybe five days a week. And I know on that estate, he was allowed to shoot 450 a day, mm -hmm. which is from 1st of October till the 1st of February. So... 125,000 pheasants will be everywhere. He's got to rear them and feed them every day. And then when they, when they let them out, they go wild after about maybe two or three months. Yeah. So they're everywhere. They're like chickens. They're all over the place, you mm -hmm. know. But they, they soon go wild. So the gamekeeper is in charge of that place, mm -hmm. looking after the pheasants. It's like... Um, like on the grouse moors in Scotland, they'd have somebody there looking after the grouse, and mm -hmm. he looks after it, you know. Yeah. So it, um, I don't know what you call them over here. I don't know. But well, the, the gameskeepers were the, were the uh, from my understanding, um, from, they were the precursors to the game wardens here in the United States. You know, was the gamekeeper in charge of making sure that people weren't coming in and poaching Oh, yes. Off the, oh, off the yeah. land and stuff yeah. like that? Yeah, they haven't seen that. Yeah, because, like, some of the breeds of, of dogs, like the uh, – some breeds of dogs were used to detect poachers on the property, and it was a oh, game, yes. gamekeeper's yeah. job to go out and, and make sure that was yeah. taken care see, of. But they were, they, were, they were wildlife managers. On that's a, nice. Yeah. Yeah. See, we, have, we don't have game wardens in England. Yeah. Um, like you do here, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so on a big estate, the gamekeeper looks after that, and 
he's looking for people poaching anyway, you know. So, mm -hmm. um, but uh, what can I say? Uh, were the were the so so as the gamekeeper would go out there and he'd be managing the property and different things like that. He knew there was a value to. He didn't want a lot of foxes there, but he knew was, he there was a. Them gamekeepers don't want any foxes there. Okay, all right. <laughs> but you said they might keep a couple for the fox hunt. Well, yeah, they in the olden days, not so much now. See, you get a fox and he gets in a pheasant pen. I mean, once them pheasants are like maybe six weeks old, they put them in in the wood in a big pen, maybe yeah. half acre, an acre, in a big, um, like six foot pen. If a fox gets in there. You can kill 50 a night. Right. Maybe just kill them. So they don't want that. That's their livelihood. Yeah. And their livelihood is people coming in to shoot. That's where they make the money. Yeah. They're paying to be there to They're hunt. paying to be there to shoot pheasants. It's right. a big thing in England. Yeah. It's not, not so much in here, but um, that's what it's like in England. Mm -hmm. So he's got to look after that estate. And they've got eyes in the back of their head. They're looking at everything, you know, watching everything, you know. Yeah. I suppose it's similar to a game warden here, you know. Right, right. Yeah, let's let's see. There's another part of it, John. There's another part of it that that uh, how it all works together. Um, tell us about. There's another part that you do that that has really intrigued me too. You make walking sticks. Well, I've been making them for forty years. <laughs> what and and they're not just ordinary walking sticks. I'm gonna get some pictures here before I leave of some of these amazing sticks that you're. Tell us about the the tradition behind that walking stick in in England because it's not it's not the same as it is here. No, it's not. The, you don't see people walking say in America with a walking stick. Mm -hmm. You go to England, go to these little villages, and you see people walking down the, the village with a dog. They'll have a walking stick. Or you go to a, a farmer's market. 90% of them people will have a stick. 95%. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, what can I say? It, it, especially older people, it helps you when you, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and I don't like saying it, but it's like a third leg. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but everybody, nearly everybody has a stick. And you go to Fells and the Lake District, um, Wales, and people are walking their mountains. Even what you call ramblers, what you call, you know, the people walking Hikers. Hikers. Yeah. They'll have a stick. Yeah. You know, it, it helps you getting up and down different things, you know. Stream crossing. Yeah, and I started making sticks probably 40 years ago. Just as a hobby and different things and... It's just snowball from there, you know. But the pictures I see, we were looking through some some albums here. Everybody's carrying one. Everybody carries. That's right. So is there? There's and you build them in different um, with different functions. Some of them are, you know, just like you've got shepherd's hooks, and I don't even know what you call all of them. Well, that, you call them shepherd's crooks. Some of them uh, leg cleeks. I put dogs' heads on them. Yeah, it's just what people like, you know. Mm-hmm. Was there a specific function? Was there a traditional function for the stick other than just um, walking? So if I've got a – it seems like everything had a function at some point. Well, you know? yeah, because you look at some of them, them, what you call a shepherd's crook. Mm -hmm. A shepherd nearly always has one of them crooks. 
Yeah. If he wants to catch a sheep by the neck, he uses that stick. Yeah. So he, he's got, he hasn't got to run after it. He can lean in and catch it six, eight feet away. Mm -hmm. You know, or he'll have what you call a leg cleek, a smaller one, catch it by the back legs. Mm -hmm. So th that's a tool to him. Yeah. You know, so th th that was nearly every shepherd you see on a mountain will have a stick, without a doubt. Yeah. You know, and, and everybody you see in the Lake District walking will have a stick. And the, the straight sticks or the hunting sticks, I mean, you showed me what you call the thumb stick, you know, where you, some of it's just, a, I think some of it's just because you want to look cool. <laughs> <laughs> you put that, th hook that thumb over that deer antler and lean against it and it makes you look smarter. No, if, you, if Say you're out hunting and you're on the mountain and you've got a fuck to ground and say the six of eight here. You'll all stand there leaning on that stick all talking. <laughs> and that's helping you. You, you. you can't sit down on no way, you know what I mean? So, yeah. And to stand up, if you're standing and leaning on something, you're resting. Yeah. Think about it. You, you know, it, Absolutely. You're resting on that stick. It's, it's a, it almost looks like if you're the guy without a stick, it's like, where the hell did this guy oh, yeah, come that's from? Right. Who's this, he? <laughs> where'd he come from? Yeah. He, he, he's a rookie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But they're they're exquisite. I mean, they're twisted. Um, you've got twisted ash ash, and you've got what? Are, what's the one that you that I bought from you? That that I got from you? It's got the. Uh, it's a pear of some sort. Oh, a Bradford pear. Okay, was yeah. it a Bradford? Yeah, or was it Carolina? Well, it is. Um, a Bradford pear is an invasive species, right. from China or Korea, mm -hmm. and a Carolina pear. It's the same, more or less the same thing. Yeah. But the Calavana pear, it grows uh, with big spikes on it. Yeah. Like two inch spikes. And it's very similar to a blackthorn in England. Very similar. Yes. And it looks like a blackthorn in England. And blackthorn, I would say, and fruit sticks are one of the best sticks to make a walking stick with. And if you know anything about Ireland, you know what a shillelagh is? I've heard the name, but a I shillelagh can't. It's like a club, but it's made out of a blackthorn. Mm -hmm. And all shillelaghs are made out of blackthorn. A blackthorn is such a nice wood, but this Calavana pear is very similar to it. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, a, it's a Bradford pear and a Calavana pear. Yeah. And I found that the best wood over there. To I make mean, I use a lot of maple. Um, I might use a bit of chestnut or something and that, but uh, my dad Calavana pear, if I can find them, they're the best. Yeah. yeah, I I love it. Yeah. It's it, people come in my house and they see it and they're like, "Where'd you get that? It's got a you know, it's got the deer <laughs> antler." Imagine on them top. coming this house. There's a hundred oh in this house. <laughs> they're everywhere. You've you've been distracting me with. I, you started showing me sticks, and I was just like, "Wow, look at this!" And uh, you know, it, it, I told you that you've you've kind of set me on a path here to collect some of the, a new a new. Uh, obsession to collect some more of this stuff i see you know with your collections of of bronze statues of of traditional the fell hunter that was that was a neat piece that you had there but you um you you travel around to different organizations or different events now right yeah that, i do a lot of judging i judge um i judge a lot of that terrier shows mm -hmm. um i've also judged hound shows especially in england but I just like going out and meeting people, and I know a lot of people, and the camaraderie, you know. Yeah. Um, 
But I'm always out. If I'm not in the house, I'm out in my shed doing something, or I'm out with the dogs hunting. Right. <laughs> or right. I'm in the woods bear hunting. Yeah, I had to. Or ju- pig hunting, or I'm out west line hunting. I've got to do something. Yeah. And you've hunted all over the United States. You've killed, you've, yes. you've hunted mountain lions in the west. Yes. You bear hunt here on the coast. Uh, where Have you ever hunted in any other countries besides. Uh, I've you hunted know, in South Africa. South Africa? Yeah. What'd you hunt there? Jackals. Okay. And with terriers in the ground. No kidding. Yes. Um, and different things. Um, I guess I saw pictures of you in the book. Yeah, but um, believe it or not, we dug porcupines in South, in South Africa. I don't even know why you would do that. Well, they're not, <laughs> they're not like these porcupines here. They, them porcupines in South Africa got big quills, like 12 inches long. Yeah. And um, I remember the first time I put a terrier in and the guy said to porcupine, I said, oh, do you know? He said, listen, and you could hear it shaking them quills. Uh-huh. Now, I've been in porcupines here with terriers and had to pack in hunting because they've got that many quills in them. Yeah. But it was different in South Africa, and we, we dug four in one day, in maybe three hours. You're not, you're not pulling quills? You're not pulling quills like you are here. Mm. And I've got a buddy who lives in uh, Pennsylvania. He had a, a little tiny Jack Russell, probably 12, 11 inches, and he pulled a coffee jar full out of that dog mm-hmm. of um, porcupine quills. Yeah. I got into them twice and I said, I don't like this. I don't like that. Because you've right. got, got to stop it. You've got to pack in, you know what I mean? Right, right. They're, they're, the worst thing I find out over is skunks. Mm-hmm. They're the worst things ever. We've lost about three or four dogs to skunks. I was going to talk to you yeah. about that, about yeah. about losing skunks or losing terriers yeah. on skunks. I mean, you lose terriers in the ground back home. It's, and people say, what about us? It's a way of life, you know. But when you lose them over here to a skunk, which is what is as big as a squirrel, it, it, it just does your head in, you know what I mean? How do, they, how do they end up dying in the ground like that? Well, if that dog goes in and that skunk sprays and it doesn't come out, it's not going to come out. Mm-hmm. There's no danger. It's not going to. Oh, what it does, it bends the lungs, it bends the eyes. Mm-hmm. And the, we've had some narrow escapes. I think we've lost three or four, but we've had some a lot of narrow escapes. Like, yeah. Got there quick and got the dog out. You better get there as quick as you can, you know. Yeah. Uh, my wife and her girlfriends and they'd go hunting, especially a few years ago. They had a truck and they had it rigged up because the three of them worked for veterinarians. They'd have it rigged up with RVs and IVs and that. Really? Oh yeah, we put everything in there. So and just and I remember going to um, Tennessee years ago, twenty years ago, and we dug. Eight skunks in two days. I said, I'm not coming back here. And them boys over there, what to do? I said, you're going to get dog killed here. Mm-hmm. And they, they had the black dogs. And um, they were telling them, teaching the black dog, get in and kill it. I said, they're going to lose dogs here. Well, six weeks later, they lost the dog. I said, because they were encouraging them. Yeah. You know, I'm, was it, uh, th- it, does it just happen in the ground or it, does in the ground? It's all on top of the ground, it's okay, you know, yeah. you get away with it. But once it's in the, and the dog doesn't get out, and that skunk's place here, I don't know what it does, but it bends the eyes, it bends the lungs, and mm-hmm. they, they, I mean, we've dug down and found dogs just dead. It's just one of them things, you right. know, right? Right, that, yeah, that's, that's terrier work now. And I tell people over here, you want to go hunting with terriers. You better be prepared for the worst to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, and they're all like, oh, I, and I'm not knocking the Jack Russell Club or anybody else. 
I said, but they all want these certificates on dogs. I said, you better be prepared because it's going to happen some days to somebody. Mm -hmm. You're going to dig down, it's going to be dead or it's going to cave in on the dog or something and that, you know. Yeah. I said, but, you know, and, but that skunk is the worst thing I've ever seen. Yeah. So tell us, tell me, we started to talk about this a minute ago, a few minutes ago, but talk about the differences between the the fox hunt in England and the fox hunt here in the United States. You said it was different. They, <laughs> over the years, they just seem to go out. Um, Besides the fact that we quit too early. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, they seem to just want to go out and, what can I say, have a jolly or something. Now, not the English lad, but in England, you go out to catch the fox. Mm -hmm. That's the that tradition. Mm -hmm. Over there, they don't want to catch a fox. <laughs> okay. They, no, and, and I'm going back. I came over in 88 first, and I was talking to people. I came back every other year or every year. And they don't want to catch the fox. They just want to go out and, and have a run around mm -hmm. for two hours or something, and then they want to go home. In England, you go out to catch that fox, and you stay out all day long. Yeah. You know, I'm, and I've been at some meets, you have, you start off with 80 or 100 riders. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you might have two people left with the huntsman, the whipper in, and maybe a master or two, and there'll be two people left, and you've had a good day. Yeah. But that's what people go out for in England. In America, they don't do that. Now you're talking about you're talking about a more of a I'm gonna put quotations around traditional fox hunt here in the United States, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because you know you go you go to the Midwest and you've got guys running coyote hounds and things like that. That's they're, different running coyotes now. That's different. They're hardcore. Yeah, that's different running coyotes. You know, you, you've got to kill them coyotes. Mm -hmm. And um, I admire them boys out there. You know. Yeah. And I I mean I was out with the the low country fox hound two years ago, and uh, you know you've all got GPSs on your on your dogs here. You know right. they, they don't have that in England. And we ran a coyote for two and a half hours and caught it after 41 mile mm -hmm. on the GPSs. You know, that, that's good hunting. Yeah. You know, you probably wouldn't get that. I mean, I don't know whether you get that with a fox. You wouldn't get that with a fox over here, you know. Right. But, um, I mean, I understand you've got to kill a coyote, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't mean to distract us there. I just wanted to make sure we are... Everybody that's listening to this, you're talking more traditional fox hunting clubs that are in the United States versus the fox hunt in England yeah. when you talk about the differences. They, um, they don't seem to, um, what can I say? They don't seem to be, we like to go out and do it, you know what I mean? Yeah, they just don't. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'll take an instance last year, I went out with a pack of hours, I won't tell you the air. Three people rolled up in a big, a big truck with three horses, I came back to meet an hour later. They were gone home. I mean, it must have took them two hours to get ready. An hour to get there, go out for an hour. You can, I mean, you must have just ride down the field and do that. Well, let me ask you this, because I don't know a thing about it <clears throat> here in the United States. But I can imagine that you've got a traditional fox hunting club and you've got a company, a corporate company, that uh, probably books a day of hunting there. And he invites his friends to come, his, his employees. We're going to have a company day at the Fox Hunt. 
And nobody, really the people that are there, they're so that they can put on their jackets and get their picture taken sitting on a horse and say they fox hunt. Some people, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Because yes. where are most of the fox hunting clubs here? In, Where, where's most of them? Yeah, they're up in Virginia. Virginia they? mostly, yeah. Yeah, and what's close to Virginia? Washington, D.C. Well, you and, and so you get these <laughs> now, people. The, the, now, there's a lot of serious people up there as well. I agree. Now, you know? I agree. I'm just saying that uh, there's some kind of cool factor associated with it and being able to get a picture taken and yes. say, oh, yes. You know, at their next at their next business meeting, they can say, "Oh, we were fox hunting." Yeah, last I've been week. out with a fox hunt. I've been out. Me, yeah. Just, got, I, I just got back in from from a fox hunt. You know. Now there's a lot of serious lads in Virginia, and a lot of English lads who, and there's one or two American lads who aren't, aren't serious. Yeah, and know? I'm not trying to. I'm yeah, just yeah, saying, yeah. saying. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. yeah, I know that. It's like it's like. Uh, you know, the guy that goes out and shoots sporting clays and talks about his $5,000 shotgun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that you, if you took him out here in the woods and take, took him bird hunting, the guy with the old side-by-side shotgun that his grandpa owned, he'll, he'll sh- out-shoot him every that's day. Right. All day long. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> interesting. Right. It, it, it's like a tradition to say, oh, I've been out with the foxhounds and this and that, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important. I think it's a good thing that, that people are willing to go out and experience it. That way, uh, even if they don't get a true, maybe the full picture or the true picture of it, um, at least they've been exposed to it. Yeah, that's right. And they know what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's not what you read in the local papers or right. see on TV about slaughtering this and slaughtering that. It, it's not all about that, you know. Yeah. And it, it is, you know... People think you just go out to slaughter things. You don't do that, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, fox hunters just don't go out just to slaughter things, you know what I mean? Well, let's you were in a you were in England pre ban and you moved over here when? Ninety eight. Ninety eight. So the ban was in ninety five? Or ninety six. Something like that. Yeah, they but they, they tried to ban it. They haven't really banned it. Mm-hmm. They think they have, you know. I think. Well, give us the understanding of what that is. I think what it was, that it, it was the Labour government, like the Democrats, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they, don't get me wrong, I'm not getting into politics, but a lot of the Labour people are, are towny people. Mm-hmm. So they don't know what's going on in the countryside. More but, liberal, more, more progressive, more. Yeah, you know, um, and they think, oh, them people with red coats, they're all snobs and all that, but they're not. Some people are miners, some people are laborers, some people work on construction sites. They're all different kinds of people. They think it's the hierarchy that's uh, all these red coats. It's not like that, you know. And then they don't know what's going on because they don't see it. They mm-hmm. don't. They never go and see it. And when you say red coats, you're talking about the people that are, they see out there involved in the fox hunt. Yeah. Okay. And they think, oh, look at them snobs. And that, that's what I like. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at them snobs with red coats on. They think they own everything and all that. But it's not like that, you know. Yeah. You know, because everybody hunts in England. I mean, it doesn't matter who they are, you know. It could be a man standing walking down the streets or a guy selling on the, standing on the corner selling newspapers. They all hunt, you know. It's not, it's not to do with snobbery. Yeah. But they claim it is, you know. Mm-hmm. And the, when they banned the fox hunting, there was a big march in London, two marches. And Tony Blair was the Prime Minister then. And uh, when they had that big march, he got out of London. There was 400,000 people that day marching. In support of hunting. In support of hunting, yeah. Yes. And um, what's her name? 
Tony Blair got out the country or got out the, out the town, out of uh, London, and they reckon there was 460,000 people. We reckon there was a million people in support of the, the countryside march and different things, you know. Not March 1st, I'm holding a pen. says, I was there, London, countryside march, March 1st, 1998. And then this is a more recent one. Uh, says, I was there, London, countryside freedom, and that's 2002, 20, yeah. Yeah, September 22nd, 2002. So but, if they didn't, out, <laughs> what, did, what did they do? Because we hear, we, we hear the term pre-band, post-band thrown around. What was it? What really was it? What what happened there? Can you move your mic back up? There you go. Um, they, they tried to ban fox hunting completely, you know. Mm -hmm. And then they made a law that... Um, or, I don't really know how it went, but they said you could go out with two hands. Okay. So they actually messed up when they made the law. And they know they did, you know. Because if you had two hands, and I had two hands, and he had two hands, you got six hands. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so then, but fox hunting is still going on in England the same way that it is. I mean, you go out with a pack of hands, there'll be 40 hands there. So I don't know what they've achieved. They haven't achieved anything in, in fox Was it all for optics then? Was it just to make it look like that they were doing something when they really didn't have any intent of... Because when yeah. I talk to people, when I talk to some people from, from over there, you know, they talk about the oppression, like if you get caught doing certain things, um, you know, from, from our understanding, it's like all hunting has been outlawed. That, that's the message we get here in the United no, States. What's it like, what's they, it like they, now? They, they, they're trying to they keep bringing laws in. It's like um, 1983s. I think it was 83, they stopped badger digging. If you got caught badger digging, you got six months jail. For digging a badger? For digging a badger. Now, there was a lot of badgers them days, so a lot of people got out to terrier work because of that. Mm -hmm. And um, what can I say? Um, badgers since then have just exploded. That's what I was going to ask Exploded. Next. I mean... Millions of them now. That, there wasn't that many in it. There was a lot, but there wasn't as many because terrier lads kept them down. But now, I don't know what the deal is. Now, you can't go near the badger set. Now, you can't even fill a badger set in in England. So you're fox something the next day, and like we used to do years ago, with it, and we'd go stopping here, stopping mm -hmm. the night before. We'd put a bag in there or a load of branches and stop it. You can't go near them. You get caught in the fear in a badger set, you can go to jail. What did you put in the hole? Uh, like a bag with soil in or a load of branches stuck together, you know, like twigs and that. Okay. And just for the, then the end of the day, you come and take it back out. Uh-huh. Just so he couldn't get in there. But you can't go near the badger set no more. You can't even touch them. Why? Why would they, well, why would they this, be trying to protect I the badger? I don't know. And do you know what? The badgers cause more trouble in England. They, they cause TB. And especially, Tuberculosis. Yes. In the south of England and the west country and that. You've got to hear the cows, say 60, 80 dairy cows, and one's got TB. You destroy the whole herd. That's the way it is. You've got to yeah. start again. But badgers, uh, 
what can I say? They put it around because they lift the cow pats up looking for worms and that. So they give the cows the TB. Mm. But you can't tell these people in, in cities and that about that. They just don't believe it. They think like, it's like the foxes now. The towns in England are absolutely overrun with foxes. Overrun with them. They call them dustbin foxes. They're in the dustbins of the night time, outside the fish and chip shops and that. Dustpan? Is dustbin. The dustbins. Oh, dustbin. Yeah, what okay. you call them? Trash cans, you call okay. them. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And they live on... Yeah. <laughs> I but, wasn't picking up on the... Yeah, the, yeah. the dustbin. They call them dustbin foxes. And you go in the likes of London, Birmingham, Liverpool, all big cities, and you drive through for nighttime, you guarantee you see foxes. They're crossing the, in, the, in between. I remember one... I'm going back whew, 35 years. And Birmingham, i never seen as many foxes in my life. And Birmingham's a big city now. Mm-hmm. It's as big as London. A big city. i never seen as many foxes in my life in a city as them. Wow. They How, was, what year was that? About 35 years ago, something mm-hmm. like that. 30 years ago. i never seen as many foxes. And I've got a buddy there, a good terrier man. He had nine calls to go to one Sunday morning to move litters of cubs out of backyards, people's gardens. Wow. That's, they was everywhere. And I remember uh, Sunday morning, we'd be fucked something on the side of the, the river or the railroad or something. And there was a soccer match going on, and we bolted a fox. He went through the soccer match with the, hang- with the terriers <laughs> behind him on a Sunday morning and then started running down a four-lane highway with the terriers barking behind him. <laughs> this is in the town. <laughs> But they are everywhere now, foxes in the towns. I mean, in the countryside, because of all these uh, high-powered rifles and night sights and things like that, people are just destroying the wildlife in the countryside. Yeah. You know, foxes are just shooting them everywhere. But the badgers have exploded in England. Can you still shoot a badger in England? No, you can't go near them. You can't touch your badger. And it, it, uh, and I the, wonder why they picked uh, that animal to do black that. Black and white, is... nice black and white things. They look nice. They don't know nothing about them. Mm. It, and I remember years ago in the south of England, going down country lanes, and there'd be a slab of concrete in the road, probably 20 foot by 30 foot. And what it was, the badger sets would be running underneath there. That's so the badgers wouldn't get run over. The, the, the tax people are paying for that. People are paying for the, to to look after them. They were, and because TB, they're a pest. They're wow, new. wow! Not to mention the fact that a badger can flat excavate some earth. Oh, and, without a doubt, as I've saying before, some of them badger sets have been there since the Doomsday Book. You know what I mean? Yeah, and then they then they trying to run cattle in that area, and they're taking yeah. up pasture and grass. Yeah, and, and you see, I've fact, seen tractors agri- turn over in the field because yeah. of a badger set. Right. He's gone down a hole. But yeah. You can't tell these people, you know. Right. <laughs> well, John, man, you, uh, I'm thankful that you did uh, did this with us and, and talked to us. I'm not kidding. I've been looking forward to trying to get this set up with you since I met you in Somerset. And uh, I hope you'll talk. Talk to us again. No, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, maybe when we're uh, in Texas in October or you know sometime, we can yeah, we can get together yeah. and talk again. Talk about some more stuff. Talk yeah. about your hound hunting and <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, I'm not the big guru now. There's a lot of boys out there way better than I've ever been That's under, or ever will be. You know, yeah, <laughs> ever. <laughs> so, do you have a website for 
for your uh, wares, your sticks? And no, your I haven't, but I'm going to get one going. Okay. Yeah. So how do people find your book, Terriers and Terrier Men 1 and 2? A lot of people know who I am, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't mean in a big way, in a big-headed way, you know. But um, once they find you, they know where you are. They'll find you. Yeah. They, without a doubt, yeah. Yeah. What about your What about your uh, walking sticks and such? The same thing. People wear the mouth, you know. Okay. All right. Well. Plus, I've had a, somebody done a magazine on me, eight-page magazine, and then the local TV station done a thing on me years uh-huh. ago, so... People know, they get to know you. Yeah. And and I'm not the best stick maker around either. But they're, <laughs> beautiful. they're beautiful. Yeah. Lo- they're, I'm, yeah. You know, the stick makers in England, I couldn't lace their boots, you know what I mean? Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. And there's people who wrote books and I couldn't lace their boots, you know, way better than I'll ever be. Well, people need to need to find you. Uh, the name of, your, name of your little business is The Poacher's Pocket. Yeah. And uh, you can't find it anywhere on the internet, so you're going to have to come down here to South Car- or North Carolina and find you. Or call me. <laughs> yeah, or call you. So um, that that'll do it, John. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. For, thank you. For, thank you for doing it. I really do appreciate it. That will do it for this week on the Houseman XP podcast. You can find John Broadhurst's book Terrier Men and Terriers on Amazon. I'm telling you. They're coffee table quality books, folks, that you're going to want to have on your shelf. They are collector's items. Also, if you have not done so, please, 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 if you enjoy our content, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We need some new reviews over there. Also, don't forget to log your time listening to the Houndsman XP podcast on Go Wild got a few more days to get your name in the hat for the drawing of the dakota 283 g3 medium kennel every time you log an episode that you listen to this podcast your name goes in the hat and that goes until the end of june so go to go wild log your time until next time you follow your hounds and i'll follow mine